When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to I'm a Writer, but my guest today is Andrew Porter. Andrew Porter is the author of the story collection, The Theory of Light and Matter, and the novel In Between Days. A graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, he has received a Pushcart Prize, a James Michener Copernicus Fellowship, and the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction. His work has appeared in One Story, The Three Penny Review, Plowshares, Narrative, The Southern Review, and on National Public Radio's Selected Shorts. Currently, he teaches fiction writing and directs the creative writing program at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Did I miss any good news? Because this is the bio from the back of The Disappeared, which came out in April. Is there anything else that we should talk about in terms of your bio or anything that's changed? <laughs> I think that's all the good news okay. <laughs> that I'm aware of. Okay. <laughs> um, this, uh, aside from the fact that uh, The Disappeared got incredible reviews and, um, you know, a beautiful review in the New York Times talking about how your writing is like votives, votive candles in a sanctuary. You know, that, that was beautiful. <laughs> Amazing. And it it's spot on. You are so, um, I don't know. There's like an underlying quiet and peace as even as it's incredibly menacing at times. Um, anyway, but we'll, we'll get more, uh, into that later after you read to us. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to read, um, uh, the, the collection has a mixture of kind of longer stories and, and short flash pieces. So I'm just going to read one of the shorter flash pieces. Um, and this one is called Chili. If you live in San Antonio long enough, you begin to develop a tolerance for heat. And I'm not just talking about the outdoor kind. I'm talking about jalapenos and serranos and habaneros. I'm talking about chilies de arbol and red savinas. For a few years in my early 30s, I lived next door to an artist named Teresa, who kept a whole garden of these chilies in her backyard. She had a lot of different varieties, some very obscure, some strange hybrids of various types of peppers indigenous to New Mexico and Texas. When she had people over, she'd often pick a small bowl of these peppers and bring them back to the house, spread them out in a neat row on the kitchen table. She'd point at different peppers and say, oh, that one's nice, or you want to stay away from that one, it'll bite you. Teresa was probably close to 80 at the time. She'd grown up in the Rio Grande Valley, but had lived in San Antonio for most of her life, surviving as an artist by cobbling together various fellowships and grants, the occasional small commission or sale, a teaching opportunity here or there. In the evenings, I'd often see her working out in the small studio behind her house, a tiny white stucco building with a red tiled roof that her second husband had apparently designed for her, back when they were still living together, back when they were still married. When she'd eventually emerged from this studio in the late evenings, she'd often wave to me if I was still out on my back porch and invite me over. 
Sometimes she'd invite other people from the neighborhood over as well, and we'd all bring whatever beer we could find in our fridges and convene around her kitchen table. As for Teresa, she'd supply the music, usually some type of folk music from the 1960s. I remember her playing a lot of Joni Mitchell and Joan Baez, and of course, the chili peppers, usually several plates of them, if it was a big group. I can still remember one evening in early August, this must have been during that last summer I lived there, Teresa pointing out this very small, inconspicuous looking red pepper and warning everyone to stay away from it. Usually she joked about her peppers, but not this time. She was deadly serious. She said it probably wasn't even responsible for her to bring this pepper into the house where somebody might eat it by accident. But still, she said, she wanted everyone to see it. Wasn't it beautiful, she wondered? Wasn't it just perfect? And it was, small and shiny and red like a miniature bell pepper. She said it was the hottest pepper she'd ever grown, a unique hybrid of a Trinidad Morego scorpion and something else. She didn't have a name for it yet, she said. She was simply calling it El Diablo. Using tongs, she placed it in the middle of the table where we could all see it better, and we all just stared. Don't even touch it, she said, and definitely don't let it get close to your eyes. Having lived next to Teresa for a while, I developed a bit of a tolerance for heat. I didn't think twice about eating a habanero, for example, or even a ghost pepper, which I'd tried twice. But this El Diablo was something different, I could tell. This wasn't a pepper you messed with. As the night went on and we drank more beers, we gradually worked our way through the other peppers at the table, every one but El Diablo. It remained there in the middle of the room, solitary and untouched, even as people began to leave and Teresa cleared the table. She kept it there, as if not wanting to say goodbye to it yet. And a year from then, Teresa would be diagnosed with breast cancer, and within two years, she'd be gone. But for some reason, whenever I think of her, I still think about that night, the sight of her sitting at her kitchen table by herself, drinking a cold beer and smoking a cigarette. She'd never quit. Staring at her beautiful red pepper, as if it were the child she'd never had, or a painting she'd always wanted to make, this tiny, beautiful thing, so full of heat, it might kill you. That is the perfect story for you to read, to give everyone a little taste if they haven't read this book yet. That's exactly it. <laughs> um, I've never done this before, but I, I really want to hear from you how you would describe your writing. But not just your writing. You know, I want I want you to tell us that first, but then I want you to tell me to describe your process. Um, and sort of thinking about like how your process informs the way you think about your writing. Yeah, I've never, I don't know if I've ever answered that question. It's a, um, it's a shitty question. If someone asked me, I would be terrified. Um, so I apologize, but please continue. Yeah, I mean, I do think that my writing, um, I mean, it has a reflective quality, at least when we're talking about the short stories. I feel like my short stories are different than than my novel. Um, but when we're talking about my two collections, I think they're kind of connected by a similar tone. And it is a kind of reflective tone. Um, mm -hmm. Stories tend to be a lot about memory and time and our relationship to like past versions of ourselves and past events. So there is that quality to it. I think that's a little reflective, um, maybe a little nostalgic at times, um, whimsical, or not whimsical, but uh, wistful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess those are qualities. It, there's, there's a quietness to it, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so that's my best <laughs> attempt to describe my own writing. But Correct, yeah. A+. Plus. Um, <laughs> and then if you could talk a little bit about how your process, you know, allows you to create those kinds of stories? Sure. You know, my process really varies depending on the story. I don't have necessarily a set process. Um, I've always kind of written by instinct and my stories have always grown out of images. Um, usually they're images from my life. Um, but I start there and I just, I feel like there's something in an image or a memory that has a story behind it. 
And I just begin writing in an attempt to kind of discover what, why I'm feeling, you know, drawn to that image or why it's been haunting me or um, why is it, why it stayed with me. And usually a story emerges, um, but it's always different. You know, um, some of the stories, like the first story in this collection, Austin, I wrote in, I wrote that one in five days and I just wrote it going to the same cafe every night, uh, same coffee shop and writing for about um, 20 minutes. I wrote it in a, or not 20 minutes, but like maybe 40 minutes. Um, and I, you know, I, I, uh, I wrote it in a linear way. Um, and when I was finished with it, it was done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't mm-hmm. do a lot of revising, mm-hmm. but then another story, like say Rhinebeck mm-hmm. wrote in a totally nonlinear way where I, I was, I just was writing about the relationship between the three kind of primary characters in the story. And I was writing about the relationship at different times in their life, um, when they're in college, when they lived in New York, um, you know, now. And I was just generating a lot of content and I must have generated like 70 pages um, of content. And it was just a big mess. And (laughs) I had to go back and find a structure for it. I had to really, um, you know, uh, condense it and compress it. I had to throw a lot of it out. And that one took me, I mean, probably about, you know, two, two, two and a half years to write, maybe longer. So, you know, it's like, that's just an example of like two, two, maybe kind of extremes but yeah i mean it's it's always a little bit different um but i would say the one kind of constant is that um i just go forward without any idea of what the story is going to be or where it's going to go and i've always just kind of written that way um and sometimes the story arrives quickly and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about like Ling Ma when she was on was talking about how she feels like stories should be written quickly and novels should, or maybe no, it was the other way around. Novels should be written quickly and stories you should really take your time. And I was struck by that because for me, I write more like you where it either happens all at once and I don't really look at it again, or I find myself really struggling and fighting with it and really like, mining it for what I'm actually going for. And what do you think it was about Rhinebeck that was keeping you on the straight and narrow? Not that you were on a straight and narrow, but keeping you sort of trusting that it was eventually going to become the story that it is, you know, like what was it the image? Was it the relationship, the place? What was it that was keeping you sort of, you know, like what was your touchstone when you were going back and revising it and rewriting it? Yeah. I mean, usually when I stick with a piece, it's because there's something in the voice of it that feels maybe authentic to me or feels like there's really a story there that this character needs to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, the, all the stories in this book, and actually my first book too, are all first person. Mm-hmm. Uh, my novel is third person and I've written many third person stories, but it just so happened that that's the case. And so I'm really like, quite often I'm thinking about voice and looking for something in the voice that just feels honest. Um, And when the voice doesn't feel honest or there's something off about the tone, I usually don't follow those stories. Those are the ones that kind of get abandoned. But, but if I find myself like continuing to go back to it, because it seems like there's something really true here, emotionally true um, that's kind of my test for it. And so I know that I've written for long enough that I know I'll eventually figure it out if, mm-hmm. I, if I'm committed to it, like it will eventually happen. Um, so I, I have that kind of faith, um, but I never know how long that, that process is going to be. And, um, you know, when I was younger, I, I was very impatient and, um, you know, I, I think it, it's taken me you know, some years to just understand you have to be patient with particular pieces sometimes. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to me that you said earlier that your stories are more reflective and nostalgic and they sort of take the time to, to allow, you know, I, I was thinking about how a lot of the stories are kind of about transition, like a trans, a transition that's actually happening in the story or one that has already occurred. Um, and the characters are sort of thinking about it or understanding it 
or trying to. Um, and they're, and they're, they feel like big life things like, you know, parenthood, career, marriage, youth, you know, the loss of youth or watching it sort of become ever out of reach. Um, but you don't shy away from allowing these quieter beats, right. Where the character's thinking and feeling, remembering, you know, like taking stock. Um, and, you know, you described your writing as quiet and I, I very much agree, but it also feels like those moments that you're allowing feels like a, like a bold choice. Does it feel bold to you? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know if, if I'm thinking of it as bold, but I'm, I'm kind of, um, aware that this these moments are kind of necessary in the story um and so yeah I guess I guess that's the best way I would answer that why do you think your um like your novels in third person and your right your stories are in first I know you said you've written stories that are not just in first person but you know I want to hear the difference for you between writing writing your novel and writing these stories? Because I, I also think it's incredibly unique that your first book was a novel and your next two books have been story collections. I just think that's badass. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I want to hear more from you about about that. Yeah, I, actually, my first my first book was my first collection, but um, I agree that would have been badass. <laughs> so wait, your first collection and then your novel? Yeah, the novel. Okay, I got that wrong. Yeah, but the, the, no worries. But that was that. Yeah, I agree. That would have been that would. I don't know many people have done that, right? I mean that 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 would be cool. Um, but no, I um, yeah, you know, with that novel, I think that I wanted to do something different than I'd been doing in the stories, which were all these first person stories, and I wanted to see if I could write a bigger story, mm-hmm. um, and so as I started writing that novel, you know, I realized that it was not a novel with one central protagonist. It was, it was going to be about a family and it, you know, there were four members in the family. Um, and, and, and I wanted to kind of give each of them a voice. And so I just found myself kind of writing it through these alternating points of view. And that, that kind of, led to a much bigger, much more complex story. Um, and when you have that many points of view, it's hard to keep it short, right? And and so it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And that was fun. Um, but I also felt a little bit out of control. <laughs> because it, was, it was a much like um, a much bigger type of story than I managed before. And, and it was, you know, I was kind of aware of that. Um, that's the one thing about writing novels that I that I do struggle with a bit is I, it's hard for me when I can't keep it all in my head. Um, and, you know, that was the case with that novel when I was writing it, I, I could never keep it all in my head, but, um, but yeah, the reason for it was that it was a bigger story. Um, and I just, it felt like the story I wanted to tell demanded, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, multiple perspectives. So it just seemed, it seemed natural, but I, I realized I could have done that in, in first person. Right. Um, but, you know, for whatever reason, it just seemed right for this particular story. Had you always wanted to write a novel or was it like your collection came out and people were like, and where's your novel? <laughs> <laughs> not always the case. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, for years, I just was writing stories and stories definitely are like my first love and what why I got into to writing fiction. Um, and for years, like a lot of people, you know, I, you know, as I bounced around between agents and stuff, you know, they were always asking for novels. Um, but by the time that I, you know, when my, my collection was bought by, um, by random boys, bought by Knopf kind of. Uh, and it was republished um, by Vintage. But part of the deal is they did want me to write a novel. And at that point, I thought, um, okay, I'm ready. I think I'm kind of up up for it. And, you know, I had, I had been, this, the book, the stories had been out for a while. I'd been talking about them. And I kind of felt like I wanted a new challenge. And so I was kind of up for it at that point. But, you know, by that point, I, you know, I'd been writing for 
a lot of years before I got to the point where I really felt kind of ready. Um, and that's not to say I hadn't attempted novels in the past. I, I had made some attempts. <laughs> um, but yeah, and the, the most recent project I'm working on is a novel again. Um, and it's it's a first-person novel, so it's a kind of much more manageable type of story um for me uh it's not it's not quite as daunting um and i kind of consciously made that choice i think uh just just so i felt like a little bit more um in control <laughs> mm-hmm. i don't know if you ever felt that way but it it does sometimes when you're writing a novel like it you feel a little bit like i i have always felt kind of a little bit out of control when it comes to the story um whereas i feel more in control with short stories for some reason. Well, absolutely. I think the way that it happens for me is I have to relearn or I have to learn how to write the novel I'm writing. And so it's never like, ah, yes, I'm, you know, here I go. (laughs) Like I know what to do. And I find that once I get going, I'm sort of lulled into this feeling of, and I'm not saying this to intimidate you. I don't know where you're at in your novel writing process, but like <laughs> lulled into this feeling of like, yes, okay, this is it. Hell yeah. We're writing it. We're doing it. And then sort of halfway through there's a, like the cliff drops off, you know? Yeah. And you're just like, your legs are spinning in the air, like your wily e. coyote or whatever. And you have to kind of figure <laughs> out how not to die. <laughs> right. Um, because it is, it's, it's exactly like you're saying, you cannot hold it all in your head at once. Um, and I think it's so smart to say, well, I want to write something that feels doable to me, Andrew Porter, as a writer, Um, because that's always something that's always the realization I come to with every book is, well, I am the one who's writing it, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) um, I have to I have to be able to do this. And I and I like, quite frankly, I have to have some kind of fun as I'm doing it, you know, otherwise it's just going to suck. both in, in what comes out and, and the work that goes in. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's really true that with every, every book you're kind of relearning. And I was going to ask you because your first story was a collection, which I now know I'm now aware of that. (laughs) (laughs) And then you wrote your novel and then you went and wrote this, wrote the disappeared. And, and did it feel like writing a novel had any influence on how you were writing these stories? Did anything change from, you know, from your novel to when you were writing the stuff in the disappeared? Um, that's a great question. I, I don't know. I, I think, um, I don't know if it had to do with the novel. I was at a different point in my life and that, that changed. Um, I was very conscious in writing, um, the disappeared. I really wanted it to feel as if it were kind of cut from the same cloth as my first book. Like I wanted those two books to be kind of in, in dialogue or like, I wanted to feel like if you took a story from the disappeared and put it in my first collection, that it wouldn't feel out of place. Like it would feel tonally and thematically kind of connected in a way, which is, which is not to say I wanted to write the same book, but I just wanted there, I wanted to feel like um, those two books were connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not quite sure why, but it it just felt like in returning to the story form, I felt like I wanted to kind of return to some of the stuff I'd been doing in the first collection. And so if anything, I think I was maybe um, thinking more about my first book as I was writing it. Um, but I think the experience of writing the novel definitely made me um, kind of excited to go back to stories um, mm-hmm. just because I realized I had missed the f- the form and working in the form. And similarly, I think when I was finished with The Disappeared, I was kind of interested in going back to the novel. And so that's been my pattern so far as kind of alternating. Um, I know for you, you, you did two collections, right? And then two novels. Mm-hmm. So was that, uh, do you feel yourself kind of... Uh, veering back to to stories you know uh, I um my my third novel came out yesterday um congratulations thank you yeah um and I with that with that novel um with with Hot Springs Drive which just came out yesterday I I found myself like wanting 
I don't know, when you were saying that you wanted the your your two collections to be in conversation with each other and that you could pull a story from either one of them and not know which book it came from, basically, it struck me because I, f- I, I feel that so, like that feeling surges in me um, when I'm unsure of like my writing. I, like I want to access a, a piece of myself or myself of that time where I felt like myself. I don't know. I'm, I'm saying this so clunkily, but, but it, you know, I, I think for me, you know, it, it's, it was two collections and three straight novels and the stories that I've been writing in between there, I haven't really sent out to be published or anything like that. Like here and there, there've been some, some stories published. Um, but I'm, I'm not able, I'm not as able as I was to write flash because those two collections were all flash. Um, and in a weird way, Flash helped me become a novelist because it allowed me um, like access to this immediacy um, that's really formative when I'm when I'm trying to get words on the page. It's different when then you have to go shape it into something. <laughs> um, you know, that's quite different from how I work when I'm writing f- Flash. But um, you know, it 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 allowed me to get to this part of myself that's necessary when I'm when I'm writing anything. Um, and the stories that I've been writing more recently are so long. I, I just submitted a story that is over 8,000 words long. And that is never historically (laughs) in my life. I have never written stories that long, even when I wasn't writing flash and I was just, you know, writing what I would think of as traditional short stories. They were, you know, like 5,000 words or something. Um, and so I almost, I'm wistful for the days when I could write flash when I, Cause it almost feels like I knew what the story was and this new version of me, this post three novels version of me is, um, is just a different kind of writer, I guess. Yeah. Laura Vandenberg has, has talked about how after she writes a novel, she has to go relearn how to write short stories. And so I take, you know, comfort in that. (laughs) She's She's amazing. Yeah, she, she kind of alternates too. It seems like I, I feel like her books have, she kind of goes back and forth. I don't know if it's been like every time, but it seems like she'll have a collection and then a novel and then collection. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she's, um she's actually got a nonfiction, like a diary. Um, I think, I think it's actually called Florida diary. So her oh. career is so interesting because it feels like she writes the books that she's that are, you know, where she is in life at that moment, you know, I'm putting words in her mouth, but that's how it feels. Um, yeah. I really like that. Yeah, I do too. And I do think like life sometimes kind of dictates also like what you're kind of able to write, right. At certain yeah. times, or what, what feels um, possible. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's for sure. I think like my first novel was definitely people keep telling me I have to write a novel now. (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder if I can, because I certainly couldn't in grad school. I was, you know, spinning my wheels there. Um, And so that was really like an exercise of, I'm really interested in these characters in this story. Is it a novel? And then, okay, I guess it is. But then my next two books were definitely this. I knew they were novels as I, as I went into them. Did you know that this novel that you're working on right now was going to be a novel or did it start as something shorter? How did you come to it? Yeah, it was, um, I had written the first chapter of it actually um, kind of a while ago uh, as a a potential beginning for a novel. And then I would kind of periodically come back and tinker with that first chapter. And um, I kind of feel like I was writing the novel in my head as I kept tinkering with the first chapter because when I look at that chapter like everything that the novel becomes is kind of set up there like all the primary characters and the themes and the conflicts and it's all kind of like the DNA of the novel is kind of in that first chapter Um, and I think that's what was happening maybe on a subconscious level as I was working out the novel in my head Um, And once I kind of got that first chapter right, and I was kind of ready for a new project, um, I just, I thought, well, let's try to write like a second chapter of this. And then it came pretty 
quickly the the dra- the first draft of it as you were saying like um you know that that you know maybe novels are supposed to be written fast both my novels i wrote pretty fast in you know in at least you know maybe 9 months to a year or something like that um the first draft and mm-hmm. so you know that's fast for me uh and and so that that's what happened it just kind of came pretty naturally after that but i think a lot of the hard work was like tinkering with that first chapter over the years um i don't know that's it was a kind of strange process but i love that because i I've, I've been talking to my students i'm teaching a class called novel in a year mm-hmm. where we're endeavoring to have a full draft of a novel in a year um and we've been talking so much about beginnings and openings and I've been kind of thinking to myself, like, why am I focusing so much on this? But I think, like, it it really is, like you're saying, the whole, everything is often established in those openings. Everything that you're going to need to think about in the book as the reader um, is there. And I've been trying to tell my students also, as they're relooking at their openings, their beginnings, you know, even beginnings of a character's arc, if it's not even in the first chapter or whatever, there are breadcrumbs you're leaving for yourself as the writer, not to mention the ones you're leaving for the reader, but that you can build on as you're writing this book. Um, And so I love that you spent so much time on that first chapter and that the book sort of unveiled itself to you through that work. That's I've never heard that before, but I think that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And it's what, like what you were describing, I guess, like the, you're kind of planting these seeds, right. And, and, I was kind of aware that that was happening and as I worked on it and, and then, yeah, those seeds become things you come back to and develop and stuff. But yeah, it was, I had not ever done anything like that before, but it just, um, that it just, yeah. Well, you know, approaching a novel is always such a kind of daunting undertaking. So I think one of the reasons I kept tinkering with the first chapter is I was like hesitant <laughs> to go further. Mm-hmm. So it felt safe to just keep working on this one chapter. Um, but yeah, anyway. I, I think it's similar to like you were saying that magical when you were writing Austin and it just, it just became what it was. And then you never really had to go back to it again. I always have this fear, even five books in and countless books that haven't been published that if I go back and revisit something, the magic will be gone or I'll mess it up somehow. Yeah. You know, like, and, and so I think that can hold, hold me back. I mean, what do you do after you have a draft of something? Do you show it to people or do you kind of come back to it just yourself? With this one, I just, um, I kind of, I didn't show it to people um, for whatever reason. I, I, I wasn't quite ready. I knew when I had the first draft, I was like, um, I wrote it in a kind of like one chapter at a time and I was revising as I went along. So I was, I was not really moving forward unless I felt pretty good about the chapter that, you know, mm. um, yeah, I was doing it that way. I wasn't writing like a messy draft. I was going kind of very like, you know, slowly forward. But um, so I knew like when I got to the end, I was like, I, you know, it's pretty, I felt like pretty okay about it. Like it was kind of, the novel was there, but I knew there were pacing issues and things that needed to be developed and all sorts of other things that I needed to fix. So I kind of knew what a lot of that stuff was. And so I just, I went through a draft, a few drafts by myself. And then when I felt like it was like um, pretty good, uh, you know, kind of pretty close to what would feel like, a, you know, like a a later stage draft. Then I, I showed it to my agent was the first person I showed it to, but yeah, I, I know I, I, it's interesting. Like um, I know a lot of people show works in progress to a lot of people. Like I heard like Sheila Hetty, like showed like um, pure color to like 30 different people. Or what? I had oh, no, I, I, she and I yeah. have the same agent. Oh really? Yes. Maybe 30 is an exaggeration, but she, I remember like, I was reading an interview or something and she talked about like quite a few people that she sent it to. Um, and they were all like really like amazing people. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, absolutely. But, I mean, if you but, could send it to the people she could send it to, you <laughs> would, right? <laughs> I, think, I think any of us would accept a, you know, a, a draft from Sheila, but, um, but yeah, so she, yeah, but she, um, you know, I remember reading that 
And it just seemed like a lot of people. And I thought, wow, like, that's really interesting. Like, I, I, um, I don't do that at all. It may be to my de- detriment, but I, I, uh, I don't really do that. And less and less, I kind of show stories to people as well. I show them always stories I always show to my wife, um, kind of before I send them out. Cause she's really good at just, she just knows if they're done or not. She's like, got. <laughs> is she a writer? What's that? Is she a writer? She's not a writer. Um, but she's a reader. But- she's a reader and a really good reader. Um, and she teaches, um, writing, not, not fiction writing, but she teaches writing and yeah, she's just, she is. And she's also just very kind of like, like blunt in a way. And she'll just say very simply, like, this is done. I think it's ready to send out. Like, um, it's, you know, it's, it's finished. You don't need to work in it or else she'll say, um, you know, it's done except for the ending or something like that. And it's it's never like a lot of notes, but it's just very simple, precise like comments that are always right. And I've just, you know, I feel very fortunate to to have her as a reader because she just and I think because she's not a writer, like that's one of the reasons it's so helpful. Like she's mm-hmm. just a really smart reader who can just tell what's working and not not working. Yeah. I always imagine showing drafts of novels to my husband like that scene in funny farm you know when chevy chase has written his heist novel and he shows it to his wife <laughs> and he's just like watching her read it and she's just getting more and more filled with despair because <laughs> it sucks so bad <laughs> um yeah. so i i'm i'm very similar to you i never really i don't have readers and i i used to make my husband listen to my stories because they were shorter and i could read them all at once but now he, you know, the past, all my novels, he reads as soon as like when they're published, he doesn't read any drafts of them or anything like that. I usually just send things to my agent <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, tell me good things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's so interesting that you are writing this novel by sort of revisiting the chapter before the chapters before and getting those right before you move on to the next is that do you think that's your way of of holding the book in your head the way that it felt sort of hard to do with the first novel yes definitely like that's you know um that's how I kind of deal with the kind of feeling out of control feeling um is I just you know and I did that actually with with my my first novel as well like I went I went forward very slowly and cautiously and chapter by chapter um, and I think that's just because that's to do it another way. I think with, with a big story like that is too daunting to me. I don't know that I would, I would be confident that I could like, um, make it, you know, figure out a structure in which it would all work or something. I, I feel I can totally do that with a story, but I think with a novel, just kind of writing it in that way would be, it would be really hard for me. So yeah, you know, for better or worse, I just kind of would go through and then often I would go back and just read from the first chapter through like the first four chapters before I went on to the fifth and stuff like that. So I was just trying to kind of get a sense of what the reader's experience might be at that point. Um, And then as I got further in, I couldn't really do that, but I would just kind of read like maybe the few chapters before and kind of get a sense of, okay, this is where we are and this is what might this might be a good place to go next and that type of thing so um but yeah because I always write without knowing where it's going or what the story is going to be I I feel like with a bigger story it helps to for me helps if I just go kind of chapter by chapter so yeah (laughs) I'm I'm glad you brought up structure because I was thinking about that um with these stories and the disappeared because um well I particularly love any kind of story where in the story, someone tells a story and then, you know, like that's not the whole story, right? Like there's other things that are happening and the characters sort of thinking about it. And I mean, that happens in Austin, but even some of the other stories, it feels like, like even the one you read, Chili, it feels like a story that we're being, that we're listening to. And then sort of at the end, you know, the, the narrator's like, and then, you know, and then all this happened. And, and I, so I want to know from you, like, at what point, 
both in your stories and in when you're writing your novels, are you thinking about structure? You know, like when are you sort of recognizing the stories or the novel's structure and what kind of work do you have to do? I mean, this is such a large question. I guess we can start with your story collection first and then you can kind of move into your novel. Sure. I mean, with, um, so you're talking about the structure of like an individual story. That and also if you want to kind of touch on how you, you know, structured the collection as a whole. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, um, I don't, you know, structure is one of those things that I think about later on um, mm-hmm. during like revision. And, you know, if I'm writing it in a kind of nonlinear way where I'm just writing, generating a lot of content, um, I'll usually, um, I'll usually search for the beginning like you know how do i how do i want to enter the story like somewhere in this big mess there's got to be that like first paragraph and from that like that's my starting point and then from there i kind of um i don't know i guess i just move forward kind of intuitively um and that's how i i mean with stories i just it's all moving forward intuitively like what feels right what doesn't feel right um which are really like vague ways to talk about it but that's kind of like I just feel myself through the process and I just know when it's not right um and and when it begins to feel right and so structure is something that I kind of just feel my way through when you're talking about like a non-linear story um when it's just a linear story um I guess like at a certain point I'm thinking this has to kind of hit some type of you know, climactic moment, I guess, or there has to, all of this has to come to a head um, in some way. And so um, I guess in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, something's, something's got to happen. Like with what I put on the table, something more significant needs to happen. And so I just, that's, it's, you know, it sounds simplistic, but that's about, (laughs) that's kind of (laughs) the extent of it. Um, So, yeah, but it's mostly, I don't know, with stories, I've just always gone on feel, I think. And Mm -hmm. because it's such a small, you're working in such a small space, um, I feel comfortable doing that. Um, uh, And then in terms of the structure of the collection, yeah, you know, I, I knew at a certain point that I wanted it to be a mixture of longer pieces and flash. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that in structuring it, I wanted it to um, to kind of alternate in some ways between those forms, or not totally alternate, but I wanted the flash to be kind of sprinkled in consistently throughout. Um, so I kind of knew that in a general way, but I just kind of built the story from, it's. I did the same thing with my first collection. I just started with the story that I knew I wanted to start with which was Austin in this case. And then I just kind of built it, you know, piece by piece, like a, like a mixtape. <laughs> you know, I love you know, that. <laughs> um, that's, that's just kind of like, I was just, again, I was thinking what, what they're assuming the readers reading it, you know, like in order, which I know readers don't, but you know, like what would their experience be? And um and I knew like the end story was going to be the disappeared, the final story. And so I knew there was, there had to be some kind of movement between Austin and the disappeared. Um, and yeah, like um, I, I remember I once went to like a, I think it was at AWP. I went to a a short story panel on kind of like ordering collections. And um, I, re- I can't remember who on the panel said this, but someone talked about how like, like the first story in the collection should kind of raise a question. And then the last story should in some way be answering it, you know? Oh, Um, wow. Yeah. And I loved that idea. And so I was thinking very much of that in terms of like the, the questions being raised, like the the question raised in at the end of Austin is like, where did I go? Like Mm -hmm. what's happened um, Mm -hmm. to my life? Um, and my past self. And then, you know, the later stories, I think, come closer to trying to kind of address those types of feelings. Um, So it's not not like I felt like the very last story totally answers it, but I felt like the later stories 
come closer to trying to answer that. And I was, so I was thinking about that. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, that's, <laughs> that's do you, do you feel like there's a similar urge when you're looking at your novel? Like, it, do you feel like there's a question or a conflict raised that, like an ending that would satisfy you as the writer not necessarily the reader it offers some kind of answer yeah I mean I think that for me what compels me with both the novels that I've written I I I raise kind of big questions very early on um and um you know like my first novel it's about a daughter in this family who's in college who gets um expelled from her college and you don't really know why but something's happened she and her boyfriend are kind of expelled and um and so the big mystery is like what happened and um that I kept that question I kept myself in the dark you know in terms of that question for like two-thirds of the novel because I figured if I didn't know the answer to that question like you know I wouldn't be like showing my hand I wouldn't be giving it away right yeah Um, and so, yeah, but that also is what kind of kept me engaged was like not knowing the answer to that. So I did a similar thing with my, with the, the current novel where I just kind of kept certain questions, um, a mystery to myself. And that, that's kind of how I got excited to to work on it every day. Yeah. It's, it's, was it Agatha Christie who would, um, she also wouldn't know who the killer was or who the criminal was. And she would put like, um, like the answers to that in a hat and pull the answers out. And then that was how she'd write the ending. <laughs> Am I crazy? <laughs> I haven't heard that, but I love that. I, it sounds right. I mean, you know, cause in her books, like it could be like any number of people is at the end. Right. Right. Like, right. And so she would put those people in the hat and then she would choose them. And that's how she'd write the ending. Now I, maybe I dreamed that. But I always, (laughs) I have always loved that idea in terms of when I'm, you know, writing my books too, because it's exactly like you're saying, it keeps you honest. Right. Even if you're trying your hardest not to tip your hat, you're going to tip your hat, right? Because readers are so savvy and they are picking up on things that you're not even intending for them to pick up on. Right. And so it's, I think that's really smart not to, not to have the answers until the end. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I'm curious, like, do you, do you structure your novels? Um, like at what point do you think about structure? You know, I'm, I'm like you and, and I'm glad to hear you say this because I really don't consider structure. I really, I can, I think about the characters and I think about like what they want. And then I only, although, okay, I, I will have to say that's a lie because with Hot Springs Drive, the book that just came out, I was only thinking about structure when I wrote my first draft, which I was thinking about, um, because it's based on a real murder. I was thinking about how a crime like that could look like artistically, like a, like a crazy quilt. Cause it would be all these, all these different scraps and yeah. you could sort of look closely at one of the scraps and see part of the story. And if you looked at the whole thing as a whole, it doesn't really make sense, but it makes sense if you, you know, get closer and closer. Um, and then lately I've been thinking about like the, the finished, you know, that's how I wrote it, but it's, it's become much more, um, much less of a crazy quilt, but I think it's still kind of like a shattered windshield. Um, and so I, you know, I, that, that's, I guess that's the one exception where I was really thinking of structure because I was trying to show, I was trying to show that you could look at something like this all at once and still not understand it. Um, And so structure was huge for me there, but, but then as I revised that structure changed um, and I had to, I had to kind of move back into, I I would say it's not traditional, but into a more traditional chronological um, narrative Yeah. because I I had, I had to make space for the reader. (laughs) Um, And but yeah, I, I think usually what I do is I I just kind of follow what what this the the novel is asking and what the characters want, mm-hmm. um, and then only later do I kind of think like oh okay well I see where I need to make a little you know a, a chapter here on this or I I need to you know shift things around but you know I almost feel sometimes I feel like a fraud because I don't think I don't think about 
structure, but maybe I am. I'm just not using that word. I don't know. Yeah, no, that that makes total sense to me. Um, and yeah, the way you described your most recent note, that sounds totally fascinating. I, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Do you think that these like um, instincts that you have, you know, you've been talking about how you kind of follow where the story is taking you or follow, you know, kind of, you know, like back up a little into the previous chapter or chapters and then continue writing. Do you think those instincts are, are available to you because you read so much? Do you, are you a big reader? I'm a, yeah, I am a big reader. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that with stories, like, I mean, if you looked at my bookshelves, you'd see more story collections than novels um, because I just love the form and and have for, you know, since college, really. And um, and so I read a lot of stories and I think just kind of ingesting that like, yeah. begins to kind of like, yeah, you begin to kind of understand on some level um, what makes a story and and yeah, I guess you develop instincts from that. Um, but also because when I was reading them, I was thinking, you know, even in college, I was trying, I was thinking as a writer, uh, as I was reading them, like on some level, I was thinking about kind of how they were put together or things about them that I really liked. Um, because I think that discovering writing um, and or discovering my interest and love of fiction writing kind of came hand in hand with discovering my love of short stories. And so I kind of got really into reading through stories. And mm -hmm. prior to that, I was not a big, you know, I was not a big reader in high school um, or as a, as a kid, um, you know, uh, despite my parents' attempts, <laughs> um, <laughs> I just wasn't, you know, I was interested in music and art and all sorts of other things, but I just wasn't a huge reader until I kind of discovered short stories. And then that led to a kind of love of reading novels and many other forms, but yeah. So that's a long answer to your question, but yeah, I think if, the inst if there are instincts, they, they've just come from reading a lot of stories. Yeah. Can you think of your favorites? What would you say your favorite short story collections are? Or just um, any that come to mind? Yeah. I mean, um, one of my very favorites um, from a long time ago and, and that I still reread and think about all the time is Stuart Dybeck's Coast of Chicago. That's, oh, that's yeah. those collections that's kind of informed a lot of my work in the short story form. Um, I mean, Laura Vanderberg's, all of her collections, mm -hmm. I love, you, you mentioned her and she's, she's high on my list. Um, I'm a big fan of this writer, Sarah Majka, who's only written one collection. Um, uh, uh, and, and I, I love that collection, um, and, and, and reread it all the time. What, um, what's the name of the collection? Called, uh, Cities I've Never Lived In. Okay. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, I was thinking about that book a lot when I was, um, when, when I was writing this latest book, um, but wow, I mean, there are just so many. I love um, Kirsten Valdez Quaid's uh, Night at the Fiestas. Mm -hmm. um, Night at the Fiestas, I, I love that. Daniel Evans is like, um, you know, one of those short story writers I worship. Um, I, I don't know, there's so many. <laughs> um, it's it, I, I, I can sit here all day, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think with the story writers that really, that you really connect with, you find yourself just going back and rereading those stories. Um, frequently I'll teach the stories that I love the most. And that's a way of kind of constantly rereading them and kind of seeing new things in them and learning from them. Um, yeah. I think that's one of the most important things that I got out of grad school. I've, I think I've been talking about this more recently is going to books when you're trying to write because it's a way in for me every single time, if I'm stuck, if I, you know, with this most recent novel, I was very stuck on at the revising phase with, um, with my editor. And the only way I found back in was to read, Oh, Caledonia by Elspeth Barker. Um, 
that offered me a way in. And it's happened again and again in my career where I just, I go to a book I love, I read a few pages and I remember. And um, I was taught that, you know, in grad school, I was, my advisors would say, I see what you're trying to do here. Have you read this? Have you read that? Go read those books. They were trying to do the same thing. And not because, hey, you shouldn't do this because they've already done it, but because here's a way in. And I just think that's critical. I think, you know, there's too many writers who don't read. <laughs> I think reading <laughs> reading is no, going to make you a better writer any day of the week. <laughs> I hear that a lot from students when I always ask them on the first day of class, like, who are some of your favorite writers? And there's always a few that say, I'm really more of a writer than a reader. No, <laughs> incorrect. No, no, no. <laughs> you need to uh, fix that. <laughs> Um, you, uh, at Iowa, you worked with Marilyn Robinson, Barry Hanna and Frank Conroy. Yeah. Am I wrong? That is incredible. Yeah. Um, and Jim McPherson too, uh, was, was the other person. Yes. Yes. Uh, and... I, I can't even, I don't even know where to begin to ask you. I, <laughs> um, is it stop time? Is that Frank Conroy's book? Stop time. Yeah. His memoir is one of the best books I've ever read. Um, and I mean, Marilyn Robinson, what an icon, every yeah. sentence that she's ever crafted is perfect. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've heard, so I studied with, um, Dan Beachy quick, who's mm -hmm. a poet and he studied with her and he said, she, they would just sit and listen to her talk. And she was like an Oracle. She just, <laughs> <laughs> was that your experience? <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, she was an Oracle, um, you know, in, in class and, and she did seminars in addition to like, um, the workshop classes and like when I was there, she did like a seminar on like the Bible as a text. She did a oh seminar. God, yeah, I mean like Shakespeare, and she would just like talk, <laughs> and nobody wanted to 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 speak themselves because you just wanted to listen to her. Um, and the same kind of in workshop, like we would all like give our two cents, and then at the end, Marilyn would would kind of talk about the piece in like in a way that none of us had considered. And um, she was the best teacher I've ever had in my life for sure. I mean, without question. Um, and just also just a lovely person, but um, she had a way of like talking about your work as if it, you know, as if it was already literature. <laughs> oh, wow. You no. Know, and, and so it made you feel like, it was like really um, affirming and just kind of like uh, at this time in your life when you're, you're most of us were at, probably at our most insecure and nervous to have someone like that, like talking about your work as if it was, yeah, like seeing things in it and noticing things in it that, you know, a scholar would notice in a piece of literature. I mean, that that's like she and she did that with everybody, you know. And she was never dismissive. She just was very generous and thoughtful and just would give such a deep reading of anything you, anything turned in for workshop. And it was really uh, like a privilege. And, uh, you know, as the years have gone by um, and I, you know, she's one of my favorite writers and I reread her work a lot. Um, but I, as time has gone by and I've, gained even more appreciation for her like I just I can't believe that when I was 23 like she was my teacher you know? I know it's unfathomable <laughs> it is yeah. wild but yeah. you know you have the same quiet grace that she does in your writing um so she I'm sure has she read the disappeared do you know I'm sure she would I don't know I don't know. It, I sent a copy to, to, to the, um, they have like a little library there and, you know, in the program and, you know, so I sent my book to be put in those. <laughs> I don't know if it got there. And I don't know that, I don't think Marilyn like goes through the stacks of the, the library to read the books, but um, I didn't send a copy to her directly. I just, I don't know. I feel like at this point, it's so many years removed. I don't want to impose on her. I know that she, I'm sure I know that she knows me and remembers me, but I didn't know I didn't. Um, I don't know if you ever feel that way, but there's certain people I was like, I don't want to like, um, I, I don't know. I would, oh, absolutely. I, I, um, yeah, I mean, 
I don't want to like, we left on good terms. I don't want to annoy them. (laughs) (laughs) I want them to think of me fondly if they ever think of me at all. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think that's my relationship with um, pretty much everyone I've ever met. (laughs) The same way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Andrew, this has been such a delight. Um, Your new book that disappeared is out everybody should go read it. It is um, truly wonderful. And I'm, I can't wait to read your new novel. Likewise. And congratulations. And it's, it's especially an honor that you would take time out at this, that at this such an important time um, in, in your book's life to talk to me. And that's, I, 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 I feel guilty that you. <laughs> no, this is, this is like my favorite thing. I mean, it's, it, it maintains the books are my life aspect of my life. And um, no, I, I, this is my favorite thing to do. So thank you so much. Of course. And I'm such a huge fan of, of this podcast and it really is like um, a delight and a, and a privilege to be on. So thank you so oh, much. Oh, that makes me so happy. Mm-hmm.